A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I'm glad you're with us on the program today. Coming up here in a uh, moment or two, we're going to be talking about a uh, pretty in-depth report from Reuters that uh, takes a look at the issue of qualified immunity for law enforcement uh, and how that has played out when law enforcement has been accused of violating the law itself and um, inadvertently uh, but fatally responding uh, to uh, incidents or conducting uh, no-knock raids in which uh, innocent people are killed. Uh, again, this is a really in-depth uh, re- report we're going to get to here in just a moment or two. But uh, before we do that, I uh, do want to let you know a couple of other updates here. Uh, in Virginia, a judge decided on Thursday to not allow the nation's gun show to uh, operate this weekend at full capacity. The uh, show's promoter had filed suit after the state declared that this uh, event was going to be uh, in essence, uh, a, a, a an entertainment venue uh, subject to the state's limitations of 250 people mm-hmm, for a gun show that typically over the course of a weekend will draw, oh, I don't know, upwards of 20,000 or so individuals. Yeah. So the uh, nation's gun show promoter, along with one of the vendors at the uh, gun show and uh, John Crump, GOA's Virginia State Liaison and uh, Virginia State Director, rather, Uh, And uh, someone who wanted to attend the gun show uh, filed suit claiming that the uh, state simply did not have the authority, first of all, to designate this as a uh, as an entertainment venue when it should be considered brick and retail mortar or a brick and mortar retail. Uh, And if that argument didn't work, they wanted to argue that, look, Governor Northam doesn't have the power to interfere or block the lawful sale or transfer of firearms during a state of an emergency. As a matter of fact, Governor Northam, when he was a state senator, Attorney General Mark Harry, when he was a uh, a member of the state legislature, they actually voted for that law. Uh, Instead, a judge said, look, we've got the uh, coronavirus that is uh, uh, raging through the state. Cases are going up. Uh, This could be a super spreader event. And uh, no, the gun show going to have to be capped at uh, attendance of 250 people, which at the Dulles Expo Center, uh, which is where the event was supposed to take place. I mean, that's a huge facility. Um, And there was simply no way that the gun show promoter could put on the event with a uh, a size limit that small. They were going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. So instead... The show promoter decided to cancel the event. I was disappointed. I was hoping that the promoter would appeal. But, you know, look, that's it's not my money, right? It's the promoter's money. And it does cost uh, money to uh, to try to appeal that decision. So no nation's gun show in northern Virginia. And coming up on the program next week, we're actually going to be focusing a little bit on what's going on with these uh, new round of COVID closures. Because I'm getting a little concerned, honestly, that we could see, well, A, we are already seeing Some of the uh, licensing departments, you know, in the uh, sheriff's offices, uh, local police departments, they're shutting down again. Nantucket, Massachusetts this week, no more applications being taken, no more fingerprints being processed. Uh Uh-huh. And we've seen, again, some other uh, sheriff's offices saying, listen, we're going to close down our offices to uh, in-person appointments. Uh, You have to, you know, call and make an appointment over the phone, one person at a time, a lot of the office, things of that nature. That's already going to add to the lengthy delays that we've seen for folks who are applying for their concealed carry licenses or in places like Nantucket, Massachusetts, where they're applying for the license that is required to legally own 
a firearm. So this problem is already getting exponentially worse. But I am getting a little concerned that uh, we may see another round of gun store closures in the months ahead. You know, um, we've seen governors like uh, Governor Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania, who uh, imposed new travel restrictions. We talked about that on yesterday's program with Tony Simon. Uh, Governor Wolf has said, look, you know, we're, we're not anticipating any widespread uh, uh, shutdowns uh, like we had in the spring. Okay, that's great that you say you're not anticipating it. But uh, if there's anything that 2020 should have taught us, it is to expect the unexpected, right? So I'm not convinced that we will not see another round of these gun store closures, particularly if Joe Biden gets sworn in in January. You know, one of the things that that helped keep gun stores open in the spring was the fact that uh, the Trump administration's uh, CISA uh, had declared that the firearms industry was an essential sector of our economy. And everything from, you know, firearms uh, manufacturers, ammunition manufacturers to gun stores were essential as well. And after that guidance was released, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, for instance, he reversed course. He had closed gun stores. But once that CISA guidance came out, he said, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and open them. What happens if a Biden administration all of a sudden decides that, uh, you know, the farm sector is not essential? And that language is dropped from CISA guidance. Would somebody like Governor Phil Murphy use that as an opportunity to shut down gun stores during a a COVID-related emergency? Yeah, I think he would. And I, I'm getting a little concerned about that, you know, not just New Jersey, but some of the other states we saw around the country that imposed those same kind of restrictions uh, in California it was based on a county by county basis. New York State, Governor Cuomo had declared all gun stores had to be closed unless you were the only employee of a gun shop, in which case you could stay open. Now, the good news is in these cases, again, that we've already seen let, uh, not legislation, uh, litigation that's already been filed dating back to the spring. And most of these cases are still active, although progress may be slow going. Uh, so hopefully if we do see another round of closures, we've already got some cases in the works and in the pipeline. Uh, and we can hopefully get some judicial relief from those infringements on our right to keep and bear arms. But I, I am growing increasingly concerned that those infringements are coming. All right, now on to our main topic today. This uh, a new piece at Reuters, a special report when cops and America's cherished gun rights clash, cops win. Which is, um, I, you know, I won't say that the headline is entirely false, but I, 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 I will say that I think Reuters. Um, they've left out a couple of cases. So basically, they're making the case that, look, when law enforcement... um, Here, let's just quote from the story itself. In an investigation published in May, Reuters revealed that federal appeals courts have in recent years been granting qualified immunity at an increasing rate to cops sued for excessive force, even when courts determined that police actually did use excessive force. The increase largely reflects the impact of a series of Supreme Court interventions that have made it harder for plaintiffs to breach the immunity defense, prompting widespread calls for the doctrine to be reined in or eliminated altogether on the grounds that it denies justice to victims of police brutality. Hundreds of appellate court cases Reuters analyzed show that judges granted immunity to cops more often when they use force against a person with a gun in 55% of cases compared to 45% when the person was unarmed. 
As Reuters says, the details of those cases vary greatly. Some of them involve violent criminals and chaotic and dangerous encounters with police. Still, Reuters found multiple cases in which courts granted immunity to cops who killed armed civilians who posed a questionable threat, including people who legally posed uh, possessed guns for self-defense at home. In all cases, the officers said they acted reasonably in what they perceived to be dangerous situations. So, again, we're not talking about every incident uh, in which, you know, an armed citizen, let's say, answers the door uh, late at night with a gun in hand because there's a pounding on that front door and they don't know who might be there. That That's the case that Reuters actually focuses in on, a case out of a Florida where uh, back in, where was this? This was uh, in Leesburg, Florida, uh, several years ago. Uh, 2012, as a matter of fact, man named uh, Andrew Scott, 26 years of age, worked at a uh, pizza restaurant. He's home hanging out with his girlfriend, Miranda Mock. Uh, they're watching TV. They're playing video games. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning. And they're sitting there in their T-shirts and their undies. They uh, heard of this loud knock at the door. Uh, Mock said, we looked at each other and we jumped up real fast. They rushed to throw in some clothes. The knocking came again. Scott grabbed a 9mm that he kept at home for the couple's safety. He approached the door, which had no peephole. So he opens it with his right hand, the gun's in his left hand. As Reuters reports, they barely had time to take in the four sheriff's deputies standing at the door with guns drawn when six shots rang out. Mock says they didn't even say anything. They just started shooting. Three of the bullets struck Andrew Scott, and he died minutes later. Deputy Richard Sylvester, who fired the fatal shots, and his three fellow officers had the wrong apartment. Yeah. They had trailed a suspect in an alleged assault to this apartment complex on the outskirts of Elysburg, Florida. The uh, suspect, who the officers believed was armed, had parked his motorcycle in front of Scott's apartment, but didn't go into Scott's apartment. And Scott was killed. And as Reuters says, despite that mistake, Sylvester was not disciplined or criminally charged. A lawsuit was filed. A civil lawsuit was filed by uh, a mock and Scott's parents against the uh, deputy in the sheriff's office, accusing the deputy of violating Scott's civil rights. Uh, but Judge Ann Conway, U.S. District Judge, said, quote, Andrew Scott made a fateful decision that night. He chose to answer the door with a gun in his hand. That changed everything, she wrote. That is the one thing that, more than anything else, led to this tragedy. And she tossed out the lawsuit. The family appealed to the 11th Circuit, 7-4 decision. The uh, 11th Circuit upheld the uh, trial judge's decision. The Supreme Court uh, declined to hear the case in 2018, uh, putting an end to the family's efforts to find justice for Andrew Scott. And you go back to that judge's original comment that uh, that because Andrew Scott chose to answer a knock on his door at 1.30 in the morning when he wasn't expecting anybody with a gun in his hand, that somehow that led to this tragedy. Well, no, I would disagree completely. I, I would say that the um, actions of the police officers in that case to fail to confirm where this suspect was located, uh, and then opening fire on Andrew Scott when he simply cracked open his door to see who was knocking, I'd say that actually led to the tragedy, far more than Andrew Scott exercising his Second Amendment rights.
And as Reuters points out, there are uh, plenty of folks within the Second Amendment movement who say that cases like Andrew Scott's are the reason why the issue of qualified immunity needs to be revisited. Uh, These cases are rare, but they shouldn't happen at all. And when they do, law enforcement should be held liable. That's the uh, word from Alan Gottlieb, founder of the Second Amendment Foundation. They actually filed a brief in support of uh, Miranda Mock and the Scott family's attempt to appeal their case to the Supreme Court. Gottlieb says police officers should not be able to cite the mere presence of a gun as a threat that justifies the use of deadly force. Farms Policy Coalition uh, agrees. Director of Legal Strategy Adam Crowd, who was with us on the program was about late, 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 late last week, uh, told Reuters, quote, um, all right, well, that's what he said, that he uh, said that they do favor reform of qualified immunity. Now, look, these are not uh, efforts to defund the police. These are not efforts to um, tie police officers' hands behind their backs. But I, I, I do think that there is a strong case to be made that when actual mistakes take place and lives are put in danger or lives are lost, that there should be consequences. We expect that when it comes to criminals, right? That there are going to be consequences for criminal actions. And we believe that if there are, in fact, consequences for criminal actions, that that leads to fewer criminal acts. So why would that same logic not apply to uh, acts by law enforcement that violate the civil rights of citizens uh, and, again, may lead to their death? Now, Reuters, interestingly enough, points out that um, not only are Second Amendment groups like the Second Amendment Foundation and Farmers Policy Coalition uh, in favor of revising the qualified immunity statutes, gun control groups like the idea as well. I know. That's weird. I don't like being on the same page as gun control activists. Every time for gun safety. Uh, says that making it easier to hold cops accountable for excessive force can help reduce gun violence. If cops knew they might be held financially liable for their actions, the thinking goes they might be less inclined to escalate in encounters with armed civilians. Yeah, okay. Maybe. But, you know, I, I do think it's important to note that um, every town for gun safety Unlike the Second Amendment Foundation, unlike the Farms Policy Coalition, unlike other Second Amendment groups, every time for gun safety would have preferred that Andrew Scott be disarmed. That, 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 that ideally, that's their you know ideal situation. They they kind of agree with the judge in that regard, right? Well, if Andrew Scott and had a gun, then maybe police wouldn't have shot him. So that's why we shouldn't own a gun. Because every town for gun safety's attitude is we need fewer guns in the hands of legal gun owners. And we need to do everything we can to restrict the ability of law-abiding Americans to legally own a firearm. Less guns equals less crime in the minds of the gun control activists. And gun control activists also believe that police violence is gun violence. Shannon Watts has actually said that uh, on a couple of occasions. So if you can have fewer guns in the hands of civilians, they also would like to see fewer guns in the hands of law enforcement as well. Whereas groups like the Second Amendment Foundation, Farmers Policy Coalition, say, look, it's, it's not about trying to ban our way to safety. Because A, that doesn't work. B, we have a constitutional right to, to keep and bear arms. So we're not going to turn our backs on the Constitution with the promise that we'll be safer if we all give up our guns. 
Instead, again, they're trying to find that balance of, okay, look, how do you ensure that law enforcement can do their job while at the same time ensuring that when mistakes are made, that when policies are violated, that when even a judge says, look, excessive force was used here, but nothing I can do about it, that there actually can be a resolution uh, in favor of the uh, victims in these cases. Now, I, I suspect that this is an issue that um, may come up in the next session of Congress. And it's one of those areas where you could see, I, I won't call it compromise, because I don't think that's actually what it is. But you could see collaboration between Republicans and Democrats. I, I won't go so far as to say you'll see collaboration between Second Amendment groups and gun control groups. I don't think you're going to see that. But it is possible that in Congress, uh, you will see uh, a collaboration between, pardon me, I should have shut off my phone before I started doing the uh, show here. Actually, it's a good thing I didn't shut off my phone because that was another interview that I was supposed to be doing calling in. So I was just on the radio. Uh, all right. Through the magic of uh, editing. Boom. I'm right back with you here. And as I say, it's possible we'll see collaboration between Republicans and Democrats on on this issue. Um, possible. <laughs> but again, I don't think it's all that likely, uh, given the animosity between the two political parties at the moment. If Joe Biden, you know, he's talking a lot about how he wants to unify. This might be an issue where you could bring the right and the left, or at least elements of the right and elements of the left together to work on something again to, to, to ensure that police officers can still do their job. Because that's one of the big objections that we hear to, uh, uh, you know, either ending qualified immunity or uh, reforming the qualified immunity uh, statutes is that, look, officers are going to be terrified that if they make a mistake, uh, all of a sudden it's going to cost them their livelihood. They're going to be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars. We want law enforcement to be able to do their job. But we also want to ensure that the number of mistakes that are made, because these can be fatal mistakes, we want to make sure that those opportunities for mistakes are greatly reduced. Uh, and again, if there are consequences for failures to, um, you know, ensure, again, that a suspect is behind a door before you uh, open it and open fire on the uh, person who uh, lurks behind that door. If there are ways to do this, uh, and I think that there are, um, then that is a, a, a topic that, you know, may be fruitful to explore in the next session of Congress. I, I would be concerned that Democrats would try to attach uh, some sort of gun control proposals to a bill like that. But if you had a clean bill that simply dealt with qualified immunity, I think we could probably make some progress here. Anyway, I would encourage you to read the entire uh, uh, story from Reuters. I'll link to it uh, at barryandarms.com. But uh, it is worth checking out because it is a, a topic that, as Alan Gottlieb said, I mean, th these, these incidents are rare, but that doesn't minimize the impact when events like this actually happen. All right, on to our uh, good deed of the day, our recidivist report, our armed citizen, uh, try that again, our armed citizen story. I don't know, it's a Friday, but boy, it feels like a Monday today. Uh, we'll start with our recidivist report, a uh, story out of Ohio, Summit County, Ohio, which is the uh, Akron area. 
Headline from uh, Channel 19 in the Cleveland registered sex offender indicted for rape and kidnapping after holding a woman captive in a uh, Summit County basement. Yeah, as it turns out, this suspect, uh, well known to law enforcement, 60 year old John Lent, indicted on charges of rape, attempted rape, and kidnapping this week. He pleaded not guilty on Thursday at his arraignment. He was arrested back on October 13th by. Uh, Summit County Sheriff's deputies, the uh, Sheriff Inspector William Holland there, said the deputies responded to a home after receiving two 911 calls regarding a woman being held hostage. He said the deputy asked if there were any females in the residence. The man said no, and at that point, the deputy announced himself at Sheriff's office, and he heard a female's voice screaming for help coming from the basement. Shortly thereafter, a female came running up the stairs of the basement with a man chasing her, trying to pull her back into the basement. At that point, the deputy responded. Deputies rescued the 39-year-old woman, uh, who had somehow managed to text a friend who called 911. According to Channel 19 in Cleveland, John Lent had just been released from prison in August. Again, this arrest took place in October. Lent had just been released from prison in August, registered sex offender with a lengthy criminal history dating back to 1984's convictions include multiple counts of aggravated assault, tampering with evidence, domestic violence, burglary, and theft. And now he is once again locked up, this time in the Summit County Jail, and facing charges that, if convicted, could conceivably put him behind bars for the rest of his life. And given his lengthy criminal history and given the crimes that he's accused of, maybe that's where John Lynn needs to be. Uh, our armed citizen story from the day, or for today, from Phoenix, Arizona, where an apartment dweller shot and killed a would-be intruder overnight. This Actually, I guess this was a Wednesday afternoon. Officers responded to a, a shooting call around 1.30 on Wednesday when officers arrived at the scene. They learned that 22-year-old Louis Romero tried to force entry into an apartment. The uh, guy who owns that apartment, known to Romero, according to authorities, uh, that resident then shot Romero as he was trying to gain entry into the uh, domicile. The 22-year-old transported to an area hospital where he passed away from his injuries. The uh, man who lived in the apartment, cooperating with authorities, not expected to face any charges. Again, right now, it looks like a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense there in Phoenix, Arizona. And finally today, our good deed of the day. And this is a really, truly good deed from uh, East Haven, Connecticut, where officers were able to help a uh, veteran from Texas who really had nowhere else to go, Robert Chapin. Uh, left the Lone Star State a couple of weeks ago, came to Connecticut. He had met a woman online, and he was really hoping that it would go well. It did not. He said, when I got up here, she decided she didn't want to meet me. He said, I gave her my last $40 um, from her, for her mother's medicine, supposedly. He sold his car to pay for a motel room, but on Tuesday, he had run out of money, and police were called to escort him from the property. Officer John Trin was one of the officers who responded. And he said, you know, originally I was just going to take it as a routine call. Someone who just didn't pay and was refusing to leave. He said, but when I got there and I spoke with Mr. Chapin, I could see that there was a lot more to the story. He said, we really couldn't leave without seeing that he and his dog were well taken care of. So officers took him to lunch at Chili's. Police say the restaurant made several meals for free. And then Officer Trin put Chapin in contact with a homeless veterans housing program. He says, that's what we signed up for to help people. 
And he said, I'm just really glad that there were services available for Mr. Chapin right away. Um, Chapin and his dog, Lulu, uh, found a place to stay at a local La Quinta Inn. He's one of more than 12 veterans living there while they look for a permanent home. Uh, Daisy Rivera, who works at the front desk, says they're wonderful people. They're always nice. They're really polite. Uh, and again, this would not have happened uh, were it not for the actions of Officer John Trenn and some of the other officers there with the uh, East Haven Police Department. Robert Chapin actually says he's thinking about staying in Connecticut. <laughs> I don't know. He might be the one person that I've ever heard of. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to go to between Connecticut and Texas. I'm picking Connecticut. But good for Mr. Chapin. He says, um, and if he ever gets any kind of money, he says he would donate it uh, to the um, nonprofit and to the police who helped him find a place to stay. He says, because they've done everything that they possibly could to put me where I am right now. He says, we all have ups and downs in our lives. It's what you make of those ups and downs that makes a difference. Well, I'm glad that uh, Mr. Chapin is taken care of. I'm glad he's got a roof over his head for he and Lulu. And again, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Officer John Trent and the officer of the East Haven, Connecticut Police Department, we thank you for your very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I hope that you have a very, very good weekend. We'll be back tomorrow. No, not tomorrow. Tomorrow, Saturday. Not going to be back tomorrow. You can rewatch this if you want tomorrow and pretend like it's a new show. But we'll be back Monday. Yeah, let's do that. I will say we are going to have a uh, holiday shortened week next week, but we will have uh, several days of new programs for you. Again, you caught up on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information from across the nation. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a program. You can also do the podcast route, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Some other ones, too, I'm sure, but those are the big ones. Do have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, be safe, be well, and be free. Yeah.